0: This is hell. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. This is hell. Everybody's freaking out about inflation right now. Several times in the past few weeks, the New York Times has run headlines like New Price Spike, Poe's Challenge to White House, and An Inflation That Erodes Convenience. A story that argues... That the concerns over inflation may be understated I even saw an editorial cartoon in a small town newspaper over the last week Where Joe Biden is standing at a lectern And behind him, looming over him Massively standing over him Is the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters But on his sailor cap it says the word inflation But as our guest today will argue In fact those concerns are likely over exaggerated and part of the reason is a misunderstanding or a complete lack of understanding of exactly what inflation is and what causes inflation despite what the right would have you believe massive government spending does not cause inflation the right said the massive bailout following the 2008 crash would cause surging inflation yet it never happened again in 2014 when the obama administration spent more money stabilizing banks the right cried inflation But nothing ever came of it. Conservatives of every stripe are yet again trotting out the government spending causes inflation trope when it comes to the pandemic and infrastructure. So what really causes inflation? How is inflation different from the consumer price index, which seems redundant? What is meant by good inflation and, and what are deflation and stagflation, which we should be far more concerned about? We're told we're all in this together when it comes to inflation as rising prices affect all of us equally, but that's not the case. Inflation hurts the wealthy far more than the poor, which probably explains why the right and conservatives, as well as the mainstream corporate and public media, are freaking out about inflation. I mean, sure, there's inflation compared to last year, but you may remember that last year we were in the midst of something called... The coronavirus pandemic and in the midst of what is called deflation. So of course there's inflation around 6% from last year, but from 2019 it's less than half of that. If there's a problem facing the economy globally, it's oligopolies like the near monopolistic computer chip makers who have proven to be exceedingly vulnerable in times of crisis. And as climate change will get worse and Worse, these concentrations of production will prove increasingly incapable of fulfilling society's demands In a few minutes, we will discuss what today's guest calls the ugly class warfare of inflation With current affairs economist in residence, Rob Larson Who wrote the article, How Serious Is the Inflation Situation? Rob returns to This Is Hell, making his third appearance today Rob was most recently on This Is Hell back in March of 2020 to discuss his book Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley And considering the chip shortage right now You should probably go back and listen to that interview And also read Rob's book Rob was also on our show in June of 2018 To discuss his then-just-published work Capitalism Versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom I've taken that toll road, it's very expensive Rob's 2012 book is titled Bleakonomics A Heartwarming Introduction to Financial Catastrophe the Jobs Crisis and Environmental Destruction," which sounds like it was probably very prescient. You can follow Rob on Twitter at Ironic Professor. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Wednesday, so producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, how have you been?
1: I've been well, Chuck. I think I've been experiencing my own uh, sense of deflation.
0: Why is that? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> You're just being deflated in yes. general, your personality? <laughs> I understand that completely. I, you know, I guess my week has kind of sucked, in that it has really sucked for some of my family and friends. This week I found out a cousin I have not seen since the 20th century passed away. Meanwhile, an old friend from Michigan got in a car accident that was so bad he now must go into either managed care or assisted living, which is really bizarre for somebody as young as he is. And a friend of mine who I met here in Chicago but has since moved away is suffering well, they're not absolutely sure what but somehow she's suffering from something that has landed her in intensive care and she's having difficulty communicating. She's a new mother too, so the whole thing is really depressing. See, that's, that's the problem with me asking every week, how was your week? Because this morning when I considered that question, my first answer was fine. My week's gone fine. But then after reflecting on it for just a moment I realized this week is sucked especially for my cousin my friend from michigan and my friend who's left chicago but more importantly than any of that and my week just sucking apparently richard what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience this
1: week's question from hell is and for your third wish (laughs)
0: Do you dot, like dot, do, dot. Do, you, do you like the graphic monkey's paw in the <laughs> image at the Facebook page? It's pretty scary. It is very scary. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell, perfect for Halloween, by the way, wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. We do not accept any money from commercial sponsors, we don't accept any foundation money, and we don't make enough money to be a not-for-profit, so it's all on you. Sorry about that. Thanks to everyone who has gone to thisishell.com and clicked on support. Thanks to Andrew in Indianapolis, our second listener from Indy this week, who showed their support for This Is Hell. For his support, Andrew got a this is hell lined winter beanie or toque depending on where you live. Also, thanks to Vess in Athens, Georgia, who went sent very kind words about the show last week and picked up a red this is hell truckers cap, which listeners apparently love because they've been flying off of the virtual shelves. And Teresita in Santa Fe who really recently sent us a, a really amazing uh, e- exceptional advice On addressing my exhaustion Teresita also got a trucker's cap See, I, I told you those things are popular Thanks to Andrew, Vess And Teresita for going to Thisishell.com and showing your support You can leave your answer to this week's question From hell at our Facebook page Facebook.com slash thisishellradio You can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio, or you can email it to us at, chuck at this is hell.com. But we must have your answers by the end of today's Wednesday show, because we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth, as we do each and every week. This week, Jeff decodes a mega secret, not mega, maga. Richard will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Rob on. The exaggerated fears of inflation. Again, the question from hell is, and for your third wish? And for your third wish? We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Jess and Richard and Alex do, email me at at chuckatthisishell.com, chuckatthisishell.com. If you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell, Email me and uh, We're looking for people who can run The board anywhere from once a week Here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon In Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood With shows beginning weekdays at 10 a.m. We are very Flexible and if you can only do it A couple of times a month we can work within Your schedule. This is your opportunity To have access to a Professional studio for your own Projects as well. The position Does come with a Modest stipend that is now Verging on a living wage And in fact it's verging on a living Wage very quickly so keep that in mind As well You, If you are interested in becoming a board operator Here on This Is Hell Email me at chuck at this is Chuck at Thisishell.com Coming up Exaggerated fears of inflation We'll also have have more of your answers to this week's question from hell Tell you what's happening on the Patreon podcast this week And what's happening on next week's set of shows Don't forget the question from hell again is And for your third wish Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus This is hell And Richard, what is this amazing music in the background?
1: This is a really amazing band. I think they were from Chicago many years ago. Uh Las Tolitas. No, no kidding. Um, Yeah, they were really awesome.
0: I really, this was really awesome. I gotta go check them out. We're all apparently freaking out about inflation. Not that we need to. In fact, there can actually be good inflation. Who knew? For instance, did you know that? Keeping inflation low contributes to the wage productivity gap we've been experiencing over the past 40 years that have seen our earnings stagnate as the wealth of the richest people has skyrocketed. So how worried should we be about reports that Thanksgiving will be much more expensive this year, as was reported on the front page of the New York Times, especially when retail sales somehow continue to rise? Here to help us understand inflation better... Rob Larson is the current affairs economist in residence, and he wrote the article, How Serious is the Inflation Situation? Welcome back to This Is How, Rob.
2: Thanks, Chuck. It's my pleasure to be back.
0: It's always great having you on the show. Now, the last time we had you on the show, a few days later, we had to shut down uh, most of our operations here because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Finally, coming here to Chicago. What is this interview going to cause us,
2: Rob? Uh, hopefully a smaller <laughs> wave of disease than the last one yeah. Just trying to keep it down to like a smaller disease
0: I really appreciate that I think that's very thoughtful of you <laughs> so You write that lately the right wing has returned to a classic bête noir of theirs Inflation Breitbart writes that inflation is burning white hot While the white, Wall Street Journal complains that Mr. Biden ought to be enjoying an economic boom From the ebbing pandemic as the government locks down, lockdowns end Instead his policies have abetted a spike in inflation that is Outstripping gains in wages, telling people not to believe what they see with their own eyes is rarely a good political strategy The idea, Rob, is that government spending leads to inflation And therefore, if you do not want prices to go up, you cut government spending So to what extent is that true? Does government spending, especially massive government spending like we saw with the pandemic, always lead to inflation? Because if that's the case, it's only going to get worse when we have massive infrastructure spending or when we have to spend due to climate change. So is it the case that government spending always leads to inflation?
2: Uh, No. Uh, The fact is, you know, government spending can contribute to an inflationary situation. But of course, like anything else, it depends on what's going on in the economy. Uh, And as you were sort of referring to uh, a moment ago, there are a couple of sort of related dynamics that can cause inflation in the economy. Um, And exactly how much inflation we're going to get is always sort of unclear. But laying at the feet of government spending is uh, kind of a a goofy thing. We've had big increases in government spending in the past during recessions to help us get out of those. And because those tend to come with weaker inflation, yeah, as you noticed before, the right always says, anytime we have a stimulus bill, basically, uh, other than a tax cut, they say, oh, inflation is just around the corner. Just you wait. We are still waiting.
0: <laughs> well, what about those tax cuts? What about massive uh, tax cuts for the wealthy? What kind of impact do those have on inflation?
2: Yeah, well, inflation can arise from a number of reasons, right? And just to sort of unpack it for everybody who might have had a few years go by since their econ 101 class, like inflation fundamentally is the decrease in the buying power of currency. Usually the way we see it as is, is as an increase in prices across the economy, not just for a specific product like college tuition or healthcare, but prices across the board or what economists sometimes call the price level? Well, that can happen for a couple of reasons. One is for what economists call good inflation reasons. Basically capitalism, one of its famous features is strong economic growth over time. Well, when that's happening, it's possible for the economy to be growing, we're producing more goods, we have more employment. When people have more income, they can borrow more against that and that rising amount of money demand can outpace the growth of production. And so you get prices pushed up from that sort of healthy reason of having more economic growth. Now, because economic growth can flow from government policy, like from the New Deal policies to get us out of the depression or stimulus packages to get out of today's recessions, including last year's COVID recession, that stuff can contribute to demand, just like tax cuts. The key question is, is it adding... too much to demand to where the economy is going to push up prices and get to an overheating territory. But it depends on what else is happening in the economy. And as I say, in the current affairs article, there have been changes to worker incomes and organization that make it a little less likely for this inflation to take off into the crazy levels of the 1970s.
0: So what's having more of an impact on prices then on inflation, government spending or problems with the supply chain, which has been uh, disrupted by the pandemic?
2: Uh, that's a great question. With government spending, again, you know, the, the state plays a major role in everything that happens in our economy these days. But right now, that's exactly right. These supply chains we're looking at are sort of why the inflation that kind of looked like it might be a passing thing uh, in spring and early summer now looks like it'll be sticking around more mild than it was in the summer when we had some eye-popping numbers for a minute there. But significant enough, I mean, if you're keeping up, yeah, with what's happening logistically in the world economy now, and I mean, just many Americans as consumers, which is our main American role, of course, people are realizing, oh, I can't get that product as quickly as I used to, or it's going to take more time to get this furniture or get this thing fixed. And that's resulting significantly from the fact that basically what we're seeing now with logistics is what happens when a big disaster like COVID hits a just-in-time management system, (laughs) which is very popular among the corporate world when you've got big capitalist incentives like meeting your Wall Street uh, share performance expectation for this quarter. You can wring a little bit more money out of your company if instead of paying a warehouse to store inventory, you just have a tiny amount, you have just enough on hand at every any moment and supplies show up exactly when you need them, that so-called just-in-time system. When a, a giant plague comes <laughs> that keeps people from working from six months to a year, it's ruinously dis- disruptive to that system, which really does rely on nothing wrong ever happening. So yeah, when we look at why inflation is happening these days, you know, the government support programs to keep people in their apartments of last year, I mean, obviously I think most of our listener, most of your listeners would agree that that had a place. It also supported demand through all this you could say that that plays a role in inflation. But clearly these supply chain snarls, which I talk a little bit about in the article just to give people a taste, they are crazily extensive. What's happening out here on the west coast where I live right now at our ports is completely nuts. and we have dozens of huge cargo ships like anchored in the open ocean, waiting to come in to sit for many days to be unloaded. Uh, It's such a crazy traffic snarl everywhere because our whole global supply system was based on things showing up at exactly the perfectly right time. So yeah, if anything goes wrong, we're going to deal with the fallout for a while, and that's where we're at.
0: And uh, the oil spill in Southern California. There's some uh, commenters, analysts who are saying that it was caused by an anchor being dropped from one of the ten, uh, the. Tankers out there, one of the freight tankers out there And that would never happen, they would never be Dropping an anchor off the uh, port of Los Angeles Otherwise, because They're always always moving, but now that They're having to wait out there for a long period of time All of a sudden we're finding these other vulnerabilities So, do you think that there is Going to be any abandonment Of just-in-time logistics? Because before the pandemic I saw these articles in the New York Times Raving about how much It's just complete genius, just-in-time logistics But now when there's articles about these supply chain problems. Very rarely do you hear the, or see those words in the article about this, uh, the shortcomings and uh, vulnerabilities of just-in-time logistics. So, do you think that there's going to be any abandoning of those kind of logistical uh, strategies?
2: That's an interesting question. You know, uh, when you look at big capitalist institutions like this, I mean, they're very short-term obsessed. You know, I referred to meeting their, you know, they're under pressure from Wall Street to meet their performance targets. On the other hand, I mean, companies do have a kind of you know, a limited but a real sense of self-preservation. My guess is, after for several years after all this, uh, we'll see firms being willing to pay a little to keep some inventory on hand, especially stuff that's a little more vulnerable to disruption or any way was during this crisis of the last two years. Like that would be pretty plausible. We have to realize like institutional memory in a country like ours is pretty limited, you know, all through the New Deal period, you know, from the 30s up through the beginning of the 80s, basically. For some 40, 50 years, like people had the memory of the depression in their minds. And so they were willing to support things like big taxes on the rich and government regulation of the economy and the Uh, You know, the SEC and other entities keeping banks small, you know, until the 1990s, they were confined to their home states to keep banks from branching and getting big. And people supported that because they had this living memory of the depression, you know, but by the time you get to the 80s, uh, you know, in the Reagan revolution, it's been enough time for people to sort of forget that Reagan's sunny right wing uh, approach was able to move people as that memory faded. My guess would be, it's just based on sort of seeing how we in the West remember things. I would guess that for the next decade or two, yeah, firms will step away from their just-in-time inventory model, start holding a little bit more stock, more essential, you know, mission-critical parts. I would bet you, if unless we have another plague, <laughs> in 15, 20 years, companies will be looking at it again and going, oh, I can get another quarter point out of my... Uh, perf- performance for this year And get the stock price up And get a bonus So I expect that it will lead to that But I bet it's relatively short-lived In the span of history, you know So what do we miss in
0: our understanding Of the way in which inflation is discussed In the more mainstream corporate and public media When we do not recognize that inflation As you were stressing Is across the full economy And not only certain sectors or products Why is that important to stress over the political, Within the political debate When it comes to inflation?
2: Yeah, well, I think there is a tendency for people to, I mean, just naturally as for us as consumers, when you know when something goes up in price steep enough or quickly enough for you to notice it, people, when they've heard a headline about inflation, will go, oh, okay, this is inflation, which it may or may not be. Again, with inflation, it's when prices generally are going up across the board, but stuff like healthcare, higher ed, uh, those those industries are seeing big increases in prices, but that's because of changes in how those industries work and the huge amount of market power that those entities have. So first, there's just that issue of confusion. But of course, generally, inflation is always something that the right wing has used to beat at the left. So a second thing we should realize is it's sort of a politicized economic indicator. You know, inflation is very important, and it can get out of control and ruin people's savings. You know, the, there are classic cases like Germany in the '30s when it had The government basically had to print money to pay off its reparation debts from World War One, and this led to insane levels of inflation, which played a significant role in the Nazis coming to power. Inflation freaks out people, especially like middle class people who try to save money. So there's a lot of like political baggage in this, and the right always likes to use this because they can say, "Oh, the left." liberals with their big tax and spend craziness they're spending all this money it's adding too too much demand to the economy it's going to overheat the economy and cause inflation but like with most right-wing arguments you know they have a particle of truth like that's a scenario that can happen like in the 70s in the US, that was a big part of our inflation, it was too much demand across the board. you know. But on the other hand, we t- governments tend to want to stimulate the economy when there's recession, when demand is falling and when prices usually are going down and what we call deflation, which is kind of worse than inflation. So we should realize that there's this history there and also inflation isn't necessarily a terrible thing. It tends to accompany economic growth, like we said, which is something that certainly you know, people who support capitalism you know, want more of economic growth and a lot of people would like to have increases in their standard of living and see economic growth as a way of getting that. Inflation almost always accompanies just even healthy economic growth of a conventional type, you know. And as I mentioned in the article uh, as well, inflation doesn't have uh, evenly distributed effects. So if you owe money, if you're a debtor, if you owe money to some credit card company or a bank, inflation can potentially benefit you because remember when inflation is happening prices are rising across the board. Ideally that also includes the price of labor, you know, your wages or annual salary that you earn. And if if that is the case, if the inflation includes your earnings, which it may or may not, we should come back to that cuz it's kind of interesting. But if your wages are going up, that's beneficial of inflation for you because it means you can pay off that dollar amount of debt you owe for your credit card or for your house mortgage. You can pay off that set amount of money with Cheaper dollars, like with money that you now get more of for your job because of inflation. And you could potentially pay off the balance earlier or just feel less pain from making the regular payments. You know, so also inflation to a certain extent benefits debtors, which is another thing that conservatives don't like. You know, they support creditors and the money of the society who have the lending power. So I think just the main thing I would suggest for your listeners is inflation, particularly, has a lot of like fraught political uh, dimensions to it that people kind of don't refer to when they say. Oh,
0: the inflation rate went down one point today. Okay. (laughs) But the way that inflation is reported in the news media is that the people who are affected the most are the most vulnerable. Yet here you are saying that inflation is good for people in debt. So, uh, because the way that the news media reports it, it's the less well-off that are the most uh, most likely to be hurt by inflation, and especially when it comes to you know rising grocery prices. That's always the indicator that they talk about. And you you write about uh, the consumer price index. So, is the consumer price index redundant when it comes to inflation? Is it basically the same thing? And what is a better metric for us to understand how vulnerable? the most vulnerable are right now when it comes to increased prices?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question, Chuck, yeah. So that both of those things are true. Like inflation can make it easier to pay off your debt which is much more of an issue for poor and middle-class people than for the wealthy, of course, who are creditors, not borrowers. Uh, but also, it is true at the same time that people who are very poor are the ones who are most hurt by rising prices because, as we know in the United States, gigantic numbers of people in this country live paycheck to paycheck, basically, and according to themselves are several hundred dollars away from being bankrupt at any moment or you know, one uh, bad health episode away Uh, from being insolvent, you know. So it can be true simultaneously that, yeah, rising prices can help you if you're poor because it makes it easier to pay off your credit card debt. If it also makes it harder to pay the grocery bill, it can be a wash, you know. It depends on individuals exactly how exposed they are to all this stuff. What you referred to about the CPI is a great point. So the CPI, of course, is the Consumer Price Index, which is the most commonly referred to measurement of inflation. Um, It's run by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and it's one of those economic indicators that goes on the Front pages, you know, along with the unemployment rates and the economic growth rate, pretty much those three dominate most headline economic reporting, anyway. But what people are always interested in is that the CPI, along with some other measures of inflation, it leaves out food and energy prices. <laughs> And people often hear that and they go, What the hell good is this? Why would I, why is this useful? The issue, the reason that's done at least is that food and energy prices, you know, those are commodity prices and those tend to be a little more volatile than other goods in terms of their prices. Like their prices tend to shoot up and crash back down quite a bit week by week compared to other goods like cars or rent or gasoline, you know. And as a result, Your CPI can give you these crazy values depending on exactly when you collect the data, unless you omit the volatile food and energy sectors from the CPI. So it's true though, because that does mean that we have a headline inflation measure that doesn't include arguably the two most important commodities there are, food and you know, chemical and mechanical energy. Uh, and there, so to answer your question, there are other measurements of inflation. The Federal Reserve uses an alternate measure itself. You know, uh, So there's plenty of other measures that do that, but there is at least a reason for the CPI to at least be part of our inflation landscape, because you do want something that smooths out that crazy food volatility data. Uh, but it does give us a limited picture of the price landscape. There's no doubt about it.
0: But inflation, you would think, would lead to a drop in retail sales because everything's going up in prices. Yet, as the New York Times reported this week, retail prices or retail sales went up 0.7 percent in September, so is that just a negligible amount, or does is there some sort of disconnect between inflation and retail sales?
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, again, they're related, but all, all of these things depend on what's going on in the broader economy you know, when you want to understand these kinds of pieces of economic data and put them into context, usually the first thing you'll turn to if you're into like macroeconomics is to take a look at what's happening for the broader economy. Like we start with GDP, gross domestic production, the amount of production of goods and services in the economy. And then what's happening with inflation and specific numbers, yeah, like retail sales. You can put those in context with that. So last year, of course, in March, you know, the virus comes to The us and become serious and we get the big waves of government lockdowns last spring and summer we get one of the steepest deepest recessions in us history you know the worst one since the 1930s now you know eclipsing the 2008 2009 recession which was bad enough this one's worse it was also very short-lived that recession went on as we now have measurements of it from last year for less than six months. And we go back to a slow kind of halting economic growth since then. And inflation has gone up significantly since that point. So that's how we sort of put these numbers in context. Inflation's occurring as as demand recovers in the economy, but supply is struggling to because of all of our supply logistical uh, snares that we've been talking about today so i think that's kind of the clearer context for inflation at least you know based on that macroeconomic picture that we're looking at the economy has been growing all this year but of course it always as a leftist economist it always feels kind of weird to refer to how the economy is doing or the economy grew last year because we're just talking about GDP, the amount of production that happens. and That is usually what people mean when they talk about how the economy is doing, but it's kind of goofy because it's disconnected from job growth. I mean, we had economic growth for the almost the entirety of the Obama administration and there was so much economic discontent. People were willing to vote for Donald Trump. Just because we're producing more goods doesn't mean people are getting jobs or healthcare are being content, you know? So that's kind of the larger picture I would put this in. Retail sales are definitely coming back because Americans had you know, were forced to stay in for a year and a half and they've got spending money and even some stimulus money for a lot of people. But it's difficult for them to put that money into effect when you can't go into the uh, bar because there are seating limitations still because you're in a state that has uh, capacity limitations because of the Delta variant or when you can't buy something because it's held up in a port in a port in a uh, shipping container in Long Beach you know like that's the I think sort of background for these like specific detailed little numbers 0.7% growth for a single month is actually not that negligible but without this broader context it is kind of hard to make sense of this stuff.
0: And you write that different assets have different levels of vulnerability to inflation. Owners of assets priced in currency like houses or stocks often feel they benefit from inflation, especially if they focus on the value of their specific asset rather than an overall price. But assets denominated in currency like cash or debt instruments like bonds are actively hurt by inflation, which directly cuts their exchange value. So- does Wall Street hate inflation as does it hurt stocks? Does it hurt home prices? because if it if Wall Street hates inflation, I mean, shouldn't everybody, because if it hurts Wall Street, it hurts everybody?
2: <laughs> Wall Street definitely hates inflation. That's a very, very enduring pattern. I mean, there you're looking at you know Wall Street, the setting where we trade pieces of companies, you know called stock and pieces of debt from companies or governments that we call bonds. Okay, so those are straight up, you know, money assets. When inflation happens, it cuts into the value of cash holdings or bonds, you know, which represent cash payments, right? And so it tends to increase the prices of everything. If it's real inflation, it should be raising prices across the board. So including assets like housing, but housing, something about housing is always sort of a unique market, like middle-class people, housing, along with your car, housing is the main wealth class of middle class, uh, asset of middle-class people. Blue collar, white collar people like their home, whether it's fancy or humble, paying off the mortgage on that and you know the equity that may come from that. That tends to be like the big wealth focus of a lot of Americans, other than just their straight bank balances, of course. <laughs> and when those things increase, and I live on the West Coast where home prices are on a psychotic scale. Uh, Rocket trip for the last many years, basically since a like few years after the, la- the housing crash. Basically, um, people focus so much in foreground the value of that asset that people sort of feel very excited when they're when they see that their home price, you know, their, their home appraisal has risen, or you know, their tax appraisal is usually how we see it. Um, when that goes up, people feel like oh, I have more money, and that can lead them to spend more. There's what we call a wealth effect associated with that when people feel richer, they're looser with spending. You know, but if, if if, if that price is going up because of inflation, it's kind of foolish because prices are going up for everything else you buy. Like, yeah, your house is worth more, you know, when your imputed rent is you know more, but so are your grocery and utility bills gonna be. So to an extent, like there is a lot of weird psychology associated with issues like inflation. And it's not always quite so straightforward, like we talk about expectations in that article too as another cause potential cause of inflation. If you have inflation, that's significant for a while. And in the U S we haven't had high inflation since the 1970s for reasons that I go into there, (laughs) but, uh, When that occurs, people can get very freaked out uh, about inflation and uh, have long lingering uh, effects on what their consumer behavior is and what they want to do. And we talk about consumer inflation expectations. If people think that high inflation is going to continue, it starts to change their behavior. They try to buy things earlier and hoard them to lock in lower prices. It can really mess up your economy. Luckily for us, inflation expectations are coming back down. People expect inflation to be higher than it has been. Inflation's at averaged one or two percent only, basically from the 80s until today, give or take. Right? People are expecting it to be a little higher than that, which it is, for the next year or two and then kind of go back to its old sort of average. I think that's pretty plausible. So these are signs that. You know, people's expectations about inflation, as important as they are, are kind of staying in line with what we've seen recently.
0: We are speaking with current affairs economist in residence, Rob Larson, who wrote the article, How Serious Is the Inflation Situation? You can find our past interviews with Rob at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on his last name, Larson, and you can follow Rob on Twitter at Ironic Professor. So, on how the uh, way in which inflation has been reined in since the late 70s, you write because inflation hurts those with great wealth and can potentially help debtors, conservatives have uh, opposed any hint of inflation for many years. Luckily for them, the high rates of inflation caused by the energy crisis and rising wages of the 1970s were decisively broken by the Reagan Revolution. How did Reagan stop inflation, and has the same process been repeated? ever since.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, again, if you, uh, some of your older listeners will remember, like back in the 1970s was the last time we had that high inflation rate. And for a number of reasons, one of them, of course, is what we call uh, cost pull inflation. This is our final potential inflation cause, uh, in this case, caused by the energy crisis. So if you have a fundamental input like energy in the form of oil or gas or all the derivative products, and they suddenly become less available, like more scarcity or just more expensive, companies, to the extent they can, will pass on those higher energy and production costs onto consumers. And so in the 70s, partially because of the big energy crises, which are mostly because of American policy in the Middle East toward Israel and Iran, uh, you get these big energy embargoes on the Western countries and you get very high inflation, but that also tends to hurt economic activity. So whereas typically you see more inflation when the economy is growing, and less when it shrinks during its recession periods. During the 70s, you had the worst of both worlds. You had high inflation and recession or weak economic growth. And we actually call that stagflation when you've got a stagnant economy along with high inflation, which is a real drag. That's a difficult economic condition to be in. Government economic policy tools are difficult to use to get out of that scenario. And so uh, even before Reagan comes in, Paul Volcker, Uh, was Jimmy Carter's appointee to run the Federal Reserve. and The Federal Reserve, of course, is basically America's central bank. They have a number of jobs like uh, rescuing banks that are about to go under, which we call acting as a lender of last resort, which they used a lot of course in 2008, uh, which we've talked about in the past. But they have other jobs these days as well, and the main one that people pay attention to is influencing interest rates. So the Federal Reserve conducts the monetary policy, as we call it, uh, in the United States, trying to influence economic growth through moving interest rates, the cost of borrowing money up or down. And if the economy is in recession, you lower interest rates because that's supposed to make it easier to borrow or cheaper to borrow. And it helps people borrow money and start businesses or make big purchases that help us get out of the recession. Or you can raise interest rates if we have high inflation and kind of slow the picture down. So that's what happens. Happened in the late 70s and early 80s under Paul Volcker, who's a former uh, Chase Bank uh, economist. And uh, he raised the federal funds rates up into the double digits and caused an incredibly severe recession in 1980 and 1981. At that time, that one was the worst recession since the 30s. We've been topping that Uh, record lately, sadly. Uh, That was a pretty brutal episode. If you go back and watch media from the early 80s, it's people complaining about the Fed. And then Reagan himself comes in with a ton of support for Volcker's uh, inflation stopping campaign because inflicting that heavy recession on the US did succeed at stopping inflation. And then Reagan came in with a big expansionary policy of tax cuts and military spending. Conservatives aren't concerned about inflation when they want to cut taxes on billionaires and and raise military spending. All those things contribute to demand and inflation too, but suddenly the conservatives don't care about that too much. It's kind of, again, the transparently political nature of how inflation is discussed today. What's interesting is, yeah, Reagan comes in, and along with this very severe recession, which is brutalizing you know, the working economy caused by Paul Volcker, Reagan comes in with his whole you know, neoconservative program. You mentioned tax cuts and deregulation, but also crushing the labor movement, which is very important. To this issue of modern inflation because remember what we said before the classic model of good inflation is you've got rising economic growth rising employment people borrow money or demand higher wages from their employer and then they have more money to spend and that spending pushes up prices the okay, the positive overheating model of inflation well that does presume <laughs> that workers can demand higher wages <laughs> and in the past they did that through the labor movement You know, by having over a quarter of our workforce in trade or labor unions of different types across the economy, people were able to credibly say, we want to raise or we're going to strike in a month, you know, but these days our union density is down to the single digits pretty painfully in the United States because of a union breaking campaign that was inaugurated by Reagan. People forget that one of his first acts in office was breaking the air traffic controller strike. (laughs) Those incredibly stressed out, hardworking people who keep our airplanes from crashing all the time, the air traffic controller union. They were on strike uh, when Reagan came into office and he used his head, his authority, as the head of the Federal Aviation Administration to shit can them all, excuse me, to fire them all. Sorry about that. And uh, as a result of that, It was was sort of a signal to employers that it would be open season on labor unions. And since then, companies have been on a campaign of breaking labor laws, which are not being enforced, mostly in the form of uh, illegal conduct during union elections and doing lots of stuff like threatening to move jobs and so on, uh, or threatening people for, uh, you know, threatening workers for doing their union organizing activities that are protected under federal labor law, like the Wagner Act. But they're able to get away with it if these laws aren't enforced. And that starts with Reagan. And so now we have this very weak labor movement. Somewhat to my amazement, the rest of the economics profession is sort of realizing that this matters for inflation because if workers don't have any bargaining power through their unions to demand higher wages to match inflation, then wages may lag inflation Okay, And even though wages haven't grown much for the last 40 years, because inflation's been so weak, like worker buying power, like for a typical median middle class American consumer, their buying power is about where it was in the 70s. Because wage growth has been very weak, but also inflation has been very growth, uh, been very weak. It's a perfect condition for Wall Street. They love hearing weak wage growth and weak inflation to eat into their earnings. It's perfect. So it's very satisfactory to like the most powerful sectors of American capitalism, right? But it means that today's inflation doesn't get matched by wage growth as easily. And to my amazement, I put this in the article too, even like the most ironclad defenders of capitalism are recognizing this. And I use the example of Larry Summers, uh, who your listeners may be familiar with. Larry Summers, of course, a uh, Harvard economist, a uh, former big economic advisor for the Clinton and Obama administrations, right? He's a big advocate for deregulating banks and letting them go on a giant merger spree and borrowing more money. We all know how that worked out. But he has a paper here. Uh, it's kind of incredible with a grad student, of course, who I'm sure did all the work, but recognizing that the loss of worker bargaining power, specifically because of the labor movement being destroyed, or being ground down significantly, that that's a reason for our weaker inflation numbers all through this period. It's partially because of the fact that workers don't really have the ability anymore to bargain for higher wages like they used to. Now, COVID may be changing that. We're all seeing online like the fun memes of workers in text threads with their bosses quitting in a very gratifying manner, and I love to see those. And we'll see in time how this current labor Uh, Not exactly a labor shortage or current weird labor market conditions. We'll see how much uh, worker bargaining power we get out of that to uh, make up for the loss of some of that labor movement density. I hope a lot, Uh, but time will tell about that, but there's definitely a big relationship there.
0: And Larry Summers was also an economic advisor to the Biden campaign temporarily until there was a lot of pressure on him Uh to oust Larry Summers. You write that the low inflation of the past 40 years suggests that prices are less buoyant when the growth of purchasing power is locked up in a ruling class of people who already consume a huge amount and tend to only moderately increase it as even wretched ruling class scumbags like Larry Summers now openly (laughs) acknowledge. Your words, not mine, but I totally agree with you. So aren't less buoyant prices good for every, everybody as we can budget and plan and predict for the future isn't th- does that lead to a less precarious life
2: uh indeed you know inflation like is something that no one really wants to see it's a nuisance i mean you're, and you're that's exactly right you know when i go in grocery shop too it's never like no one wants to see that a product's gotten more expensive you know like that's never a favorable thing but to the extent that inflation usually comes with economic growth which most people do like because they see capitalism's economic growth as a potential path for them to have higher incomes and a better standard of living in the future to that extent inflation is something that people up to a point you could argue they should accept you know Um, it's like yeah it's a downside but it's a downside of something that you want you know Um, You know, it's like if you make more money, you get a better job. And now you realize you kind of need to move. It's like, okay, well, it's moving sucks. But if it's because you got a better job that you're excited about, it can be a drag that accompanies a broadly positive thing. And arguably the same is true here. I mean, there are a lot of problems with you know, our endless economic growth model and so on. I'm not trying to say that capitalism works perfectly even when it doesn't have high inflation, uh, just to say that a lot of people see that as a favorable thing. you know. But it's true, it does make it harder to plan like your economic activity and so on, which can be a big deal, you know, especially if you're at a big life decision moment, like if you're moving or taking a new job or starting a family or something, budgeting becomes something that you're really psychologically focused on, making sure I don't suddenly run out of money and can't feed the baby or something like that. And When you have higher inflation, it gets tougher to do that. What really gets hard and what really freaks people out is not just high inflation, but erratic inflation, which is something that we saw a lot of in the 70s, where you get a very high inflation number one quarter and a kind of high one next quarter, and then it would be low and the next quarter high again. That unpredictable craziness Like it it alarms people generally, which can be important. Like German consumers are still scarred by Germany's 30s inflation to this day, but also makes it difficult, as you said, to like plan and project what things are going to cost. If you run a business, it's going to be a real, real danger for you trying to operate a business at a time when prices are shooting up or down. You make a bunch of big investments and discover that, oh, I actually can't make money from these investments because some raw material I need is not too expensive, or it's caught up in a supply problem or something like that. So inflation is definitely not a good thing. And it was very lovely. You know, all through my life, inflation has been in that low one or 2% neighborhood, kind of low enough to ignore, basically, you know, small enough to come with growth, but not big enough to scare people. Uh, but it's especially like businesses, and again, Wall Street, they hate anything over that mild level of inflation, specifically for the reason you said, it makes it harder to plan and and you know, that's a big deal for you and me as middle class people. But when you're a giant, when you work for a giant company and you make million-dollar investments in you know, multi-million dollar decisions about asset allocation, inflation that goes up and down and is high is very alarming to you. And especially if you're a conservative, which is common, of course, among people with that much money. Uh, Then you already have this whole idealized version of the market in your head, where it's got this efficient price mechanism and markets efficiently allocate resources and the price signals in the marketplace let you know exactly how much things cost. These are big things that conservative economists are very proud of. High and erratic inflation mess up all that because they make price signals unreliable. So there's a whole like catalog of things about inflation that are a drag for different levels and different people in the economy. It can be beneficial if you owe money, but again, it's something you normally yeah do want to keep to a limited level. Uh, again, because just because it freaks people out and it, you know it can erode purchasing power too over time. It's real. You write price increases in the market for
0: used cars and trucks Accounted for a full one-third of June's inflation spike Why? The reopening has meant renewed demand for vehicles For workers returning to in-person work At the same time, production has been constrained due to supply chain problems Primarily around the computer chips that are now ubiquitous in so many products The global chip shortage itself tells us a lot about how the economy works these days The sophisticated computer chips we rely on to run everything From our phones to our car transports emissions are made by a small oligopoly of firms like Broadcom and Intel, with some making hyper-specialized chips that manage Wi-Fi connections or graphics and others producing the processor brains of machines using them. So how does being an oligopoly lead to a shortage of supply? And does that drive up inflation as well?
2: Yeah, for sure. So uh, just to make sure Listeners are on the same page. You know, oligopoly is a market structure you can have. It's like monopoly. You know, with monopoly, you have one single company that has usually 90% market share or more, is kind of the territory where we start calling you a monopoly, where you're basically the only producer of a product. Oligopoly is when you have a small number of producing firms and oligopoly is the most common market condition in modern capitalism. If you look at our cell phone carriers, you've got three companies there, you know, AT&T, Verizon and T-Mobile. If you look at investment banking, it's Chase, Citi, Bank of America and Wells Fargo. Any industry you can point to and name the big three or four or five companies then it's an oligopoly, which means you know, media, energy, shipping, communications, uh, online platforms, uh, smartphone, uh, cell signal, and operating systems. All of these are oligopolized markets. Okay? So what does monopoly or oligopoly have to do with inflation? Well, one thing that we're seeing is you know this inflation problem is being aggravated a lot by these supply chain disruptions. Well, the fewer the firms are in number, the more important it is when they have issues. If you have 10 companies that make a product and half of them have a supply chain problem, okay, that could be an issue, but you still have the other half of the industry that's producing. When you have just two or three companies, or even just one, like with these semiconductor chips, then as soon as any company has any issue, like with supply chains or anything else, like an earthquake or something, then it's the whole world's problem. Because suddenly this company that makes half of the industry's production, or maybe all of it, is having a big disruption and can't meet their delivery times. And that's, of course, going to end up raising prices for all the products that are made from whatever good we're looking at. And so, yeah, the example I refer to in the current affairs article It's kind of interesting one, but you know, it's all in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, And again, I get a lot of my. If you want to keep up with the economy, a good conservative business news venue is a great way to do it because it's a lot more earnest and uh, less afraid of its audience and willing to say more candid things about capitalism. And the Wall Street Journal is very good for that kind of thing. Uh, So here we have their analysis of the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TMSC, which almost no one is familiar with, almost no American has ever heard of, You know, some East Asian technical company, who cares? They make most of the smartphone brains in the world they make most of those smartphone processing chips the brains on your phone that manage the operating system and all the other chips in there like your modem and graphics chips and so on so that company makes all those chips if anything goes wrong at that one company you know even if they just get hit by lightning somehow it's a huge risk for everybody so the more concentrated and monopolized or oligopolized a market is today, the more vulnerable it is to any kind of thing going wrong, certainly including a big plague that means they can't work for half a year or a year and then puts them behind on orders and creates a global supply problem ever since. So, Because this company has a near monopoly on those smart, on those processing chips, it's had huge effects on the rest of the economy because they had a very bad drought in Taiwan through last year which Taiwan's government openly acknowledges, in the central bank even, has openly said is related to climate change. So other governments at least are recognizing this issue more and more, which is slightly reassuring. But because of their climate change, people need to realize that when you have a drought, that's a big deal. Making computer chips is one of the thirstiest industries there is of, you know, I talk a lot in affairs about externalities and the side effects of products that we consume and the things we don't think about when we buy things. Some of the products that we buy, the amount of fresh, precious, fresh non-salt water they consume is incredible. It takes so much water to make a smartphone chip or a little bag of our precious West Coast uh, legal marijuana. These are just very, very thirsty commodities. And the same is true of chips. It's true of gasoline and all these other products, almonds. And it's true for smartphone chips. They're so complicated. It takes a huge amount of water to clean off the components and move them on to the next step of production. So that really hurt uh, that Taiwan company's ability to make these important chips. Okay? And then there's COVID and the huge increase in demand for products that use these chips. And that includes things like cars. So, new cars have all of these increasingly fancy computerized functions. Anyone who's been in a new car, like on an Uber trip or something, <laughs> for the last uh, several years will have seen this. It means last year, when you have an increase in demand for products made from these chips and a drought in the country that has the monopoly that makes them, mm-hmm. it means they get insanely costly. And as a result, there's and there's also just a straight supply limitation. And so new cars, like Toyota, for example, was leaving fully completed new cars sitting on parking lots in Japan waiting for export because they hadn't had their chips installed you know and as a result there's this decrease in the availability of new cars and as a result we saw like in last june and july as you referred to almost a third of that spike in inflation came from used car and trucks why because there's climate change causing a drought in a country where a monopoly makes all of our chips like this is modern capitalism it's hyper concentrated markets super powerful corporations and billionaires in a messed up environment that that between COVID and climate change, it's making it harder and harder for our global supply networks to operate, even in normal conditions.
0: You also point out that looking forward, managing inflation remains mainly the job of the Federal Reserve, a partially private and partially public body with regional presidents elected by private banks and national leadership nominated by the president with a great deal of independence. Technically, the Fed is expected to both limit inflation to an average of 2% and maintain, quote unquote, full employment. Uh, usually, meaning unemployment in the area of three to four percent. But as shown by the historic role it played in the rise of neoliberalism and austerity in the early 1980s, its banker leadership has always been more inflation hawkish than eager to see tight job markets, and could put more negotiating put uh, that could put more negotiating power in the hands of workers. So often in public-private partnerships like these, Rob, we see the p- private. <laughs> Overpowering, overwhelming the public. Does the Fed represent more the demands of private bankers or the
2: public? Uh, that's a pretty easy question. <laughs> Um, if nothing else, I'd like to point out that you know, most of the Fed's policymaking and ranking staff usually come from the private financial services industry. They come from banks and insurers and Wall Street and investment banking and finance, sometimes from academia, you know, academic departments that pay attention to that. Uh, but just on the face of it, I mean, the Federal Reserve is mostly run by bankers. The, that includes the Federal Reserve's you know, main policymaking body in D.C. But also remember that that board that makes the decisions is partially made up of the heads of the Federal Reserve's regional banks. So there's, you know, a West Coast Federal Bank Reserve Bank headquartered in San Francisco and one in Chicago and one in Kansas City and so on. And those figures are elected by the banks in their region. Like they're actually chosen by private entities in that region of the U.S. and then sent to D.C. to be on the policymaking bodies and give their analysis and so on. So on the face of it, I mean, it's easy to see. It's a banker run entity from the regional bank voting process all the way up to who heads the Federal Reserve at the highest level, which, you know, very frequently is someone out of finance. We mentioned Paul Volcker, who came from Chase Bank, the current head. Of the Federal Reserve um, is uh, Jerome Powell, who, as I recall, is from the Carlyle Group, which is you know, the private equity group that, uh, for a while, had George Bush Senior as a prominent member. You know, so these guys definitely come from banking. It's not surprising that they reflect a banking perspective, and as a result, yeah, they're pretty inflation hawkish more than they are employment hawkish. If it ever comes down to a choice, as I make this point here, if the choice comes down to keeping inflation in its place or aiding job market recovery, the Fed has a long history of choosing limiting inflation because that's Wall Street's main priority. Now, I will say to defend the Fed here, for a lot of the last 15 years since the finance crisis, the Federal Reserve has often been the only body that's trying to support the economy and its recovery from like our last two recessions, uh, lowering interest rates to zero or close to zero, doing its big quantitative easing bond buying program, which conservatives across the board told us would lead to crazy inflation, and you know that ne- that never did happen because you know workers don't have the bargaining power to push up their wages. Maybe they do just now, but they haven't previously. You know, so it's not just that the Federal Reserve is picked by and nominated you know the leadership is nominated by and dominated by bankers it's also the fact that just its policy record you know, shows this so they are willing at times to be the only entity supporting economic recovery it should be the Congress passing stimulus if we want to increase economic recovery but these days uh, with the really cr- crazy entity that, that the Republican Party has devolved into and its willingness to pay chicken like just last uh, just this month over the nation's debt defaulting which is a insane prospect for a party to even briefly flirt with like this, it goes to show like they're willing to sabotage recovery to try to get a political gain out of it. And so that's why we often don't see any stimulus when the economy needs it, or it's only in the form of tax cuts for Donald Trump's income brackets. Uh, And so uh, I will give the Fed credit for being sometimes the only entity trying to get unemployment down. At least they care. You know, but their main priority will always be inflation. And if it continues to be too high, they will raise interest rates. I expect them to do that. Most observers do. Uh, and so we may see soon again exactly where uh, the Fed's loyalties lie.
0: And you also write that make no mistake, if the choice comes to keeping inflation in its box or Aiding recovery in the job market, the Fed has, like you were saying, a long history of choosing the former most uh, dramatically in Reagan's Fed chiefs, uh, Paul Volcker's recession of the early 1980s. So, so must the Biden administration or any admin- administration, must the Fed choose between addressing inflation or jobs? Is this a zero sum game?
2: Well, ideally, we would have fiscal policy to help with the jobs. Again, when you have Congress pass uh, any kind of legislation that's good for employment, such as rebuilding our falling down infrastructure, which really needs the work, like you could have support from the job market from fiscal policy. Unfortunately, the modern Democrats include a lot of big conservatives, especially in the Senate, which we've all been forced to pay attention to for the last few weeks. Uh, So it's unclear how much that fiscal policy is going to be. Just like with Obama, the administration isn't really committed to it, and they're letting conservatives in both parties water it down to where people in the majority don't really feel an impact from it. And I expect that the Democrats will get wiped out next year, just like they did in 2010 under Obama when his stimulus package was very wimpy, partially because he listened to Larry Summers. (laughs) So uh, we'll see. The Biden administration has a lot more freedom, but because it's a modern Democrat administration, it doesn't take its agenda to the public and get big um, big popular support behind the pro- policy with people in the streets every day demanding it and calling their senators constantly pushing for it like that's how you do it so many people watching politics now just well it's the federal reserve and the congress and the white house like in the supreme court like it's just the powerful people in it like the new deal happened because people were in the street like roosevelt wouldn't have gotten the support for any of those new deal programs that he did If it wasn't for the fact that there was a giant labor movement then led by the CIO that was leading sit down strikes, big waves of work stoppages, scaring the hell out of the the business community and the ruling class that owns all the stock and the companies of that business community. When you have people in the streets like Bernie Sanders understands this, he tries to get big support for his pet projects, you know, for for his progressive policy and gets some success from that. But Biden, like Obama, it's okay. Here's my nice progressive policy bill. Just let the Senate debate it. And I won't push for it, even in the Congress, let alone on TV and on, you know, on a speaking tour or something. And so he's willing to let it get sliced down to a much smaller package by the conservatives in the Senate or you know, possibly also the House. And it'll be you know, to their detriment, but they have the option of going big on stimulus and unemployment you know, and, you know, and lowering unemployment. It, we still have 5.7 million fewer jobs than we did before the pandemic. So there's like definitely work to be done. The administration could take steps forward on this, but again, before Biden became vice president under Obama, he was the most conservative Democrat in the Senate and it's just not realistic to expect him to really commit and fight for a progressive policy package. He was willing to like propose it. There are some fairly impressive and extensive uh, provisions in the social policy and infrastructure bills that are getting sliced down to pieces right now. But if you're not willing to go in and really, really fight for it, uh, yeah, it's gonna get cut down and it's gonna be left to the Federal Reserve to try to stimulate the economy. And if inflation goes up, they probably will stop trying even to do that. So. Uh, time- Time will tell, but because of the terrible uh, incentives and institutions that we're dealing with here, um, it's not a time to be unbelievably optimistic about the projection for the economy.
0: You write that, ironically, the threat of inflation is highly inflated by the right, who have so somberly predicted spikes of inflation at every policy turn they dislike. But this isn't just about the right anymore, correct? Because the New York Times front page has been all about the Biden administration and its fears about inflation, how it's cooling the economy and leading to not as many workers being hired in September as expected. So our exaggerated concerns over inflation now conventional wisdom across party lines and aisles today? It, it, under neoliberalism, how much more likely is it that, there's that hatred for inflation is bipartisan?
2: Well, it absolutely is. I mean, that that last bit absolutely is the case. As the Democratic Party moved to the right under Carter and then Clinton and then Obama, and now has a lot of you know, conservative policies in its uh, platform and often its senators are indistinguishable from Republican ones. Yeah, opposition to inflation has become very much a bipartisan policy. I mean, Clinton and Obama talked about it frequently. So like that part's not even controversial. Uh like as far as how this will shake out going forward, I think a more reasonable way to look at it is like, yeah, these I, I mean, I'm suggesting that the the threat of inflation is inflated by the conservatives. It is happening now, but they've been saying it's going to happen every time there's been any Democrat in power anywhere for the last 40 years. So I think sort of the way to sort of perceive this is like, well, like the cliche, like even a stopped clock can be right twice a day. Sometimes we do have higher inflation. And if you're a conservative who cries inflation at every progressive policy enactment eventually there actually will be some inflation when you said there would be but it is a real thing right now there's a reason why the new york times and yeah people across the political spectrum are concerned about inflation i mean partially bear in mind it's because it's kind of a novelty we haven't had high inflation for over 40 years 40 years and so a lot of people you know including most of my students like that means they haven't had high inflation like in their lifetimes So I think a lot of people are partially freaking out about inflation because, oh, I've read about this inflation. It sounded bad. If it has a lot of novelty, that also does increase how much attention people will pay. But like I say at the end of this article too, let me say it now also, like we social scientists, uh, we do not have a fantastic record of projecting the future. Uh, We tend to be pretty really bad at it actually and misanticipate things and have our economic projections come out wrong surprisingly frequently so i don't make a huge commitment about what's going to happen with inflation there's so many big moving parts here that have you know different kinds of related issues limiting how they work i feel like exactly what will happen with inflation is unclear we could have a lot of effect on it with our institutions like the fed or the white house but they'd have to again have the political will to care more about unemployment uh, to act un- uh, to act in that direction.
0: One last question for you, Rob. We have been speaking with Current Affairs Economist in Residence, Rob Larson, who wrote the article, How Serious Is the Inflation Situation? You can follow Rob on Twitter, at IronicProfessor. One last question for you, and as you may or may not remember, our final question is always the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So what would you say to someone who has concerns over inflation who is not well off uh, complaining about higher prices what would you say to them uh, in in convincing them that this your concerns over inflation are exaggerated
2: yeah well I, i would i would just make this point i would say inflation is very real you know the rise in prices in the economy is very real and for a lot of a lot of americans live on a pretty thin margin of survival Especially for a country with this much money, so the first thing I would say is like, this, we have pretty modest inflation right now, and it's enough to be brutal. So I understand that this is like not something you want to see and something that needs to go away for your economic survival. But I would make the point that higher inflation isn't so bad if your pay is also going up. You know, if your pay rises by 4% and inflation goes up by 3%, hey, we came out ahead here. So what you care about is your inflation-adjusted pay, you know, your real income, as we call it in economics. And there, it's a question of, like, why aren't our wages going up fast enough? So in, the broader inflation picture comes from global supply chains and global policymaking that we individually can have very little effect on, right? However, your personal pay is something you can have an effect on. So if you want to get ahead of inflation, the best thing you can do is to have a unionized workplace. So then you can pull wage increases to compensate or even more than compensate out of your dang employer who's raising prices that they charge people, but trying not to raise your wage or salary. So I think what I tend to say to people is remember that your pay is also a price. It's the price of your labor. When you get your check for your wage, your hourly wage or your monthly salary, you know, so it's I I would suggest that people focus less on rising prices, which are real, you can't ignore them, but focus more on getting your wages, your income to go up to match that stuff. And that can happen through trying to have workplace organization or through having more uh, progressive economic policy out of a future administration.
0: Rob, it's great having you back on this show. I hope this interview doesn't do like the last one did, which was portend a pandemic. Uh, We have been speaking with current affairs economist in residence, Rob Larson, who wrote the article, How Serious Is the Inflation Situation for Current Affairs? And you can follow Rob on Twitter at IronicProfessor and find all of our past interviews with Rob at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on Larson. Thank you so much for being back on the show today. This has been a fascinating conversation you know we're going to bug you again in the future. Great to hear your voice again. Take care, sir.
2: Thanks, Chuck. My pleasure, Matt.
0: Take care. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong, This Is Hell. If that conversation with Rob on the truth about inflation made you mad or gave you anxiety or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support. Richard, what is this week's question from hell, and how are our listeners responding so far? This week's question from
1: hell is, and for your third wish. <laughs> oh,
0: I love your paws That was very nice, very Paul Harvey esque.
1: I don't know what's going on. We have very few responses.
0: I know week. this has been a dud this week. <clears throat> Nobody wants it to have anything to do with that monkey
1: paw. Alex, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron D., he's using his last wish for no more monkeys jumping on the bed. Okay. Whatever. Is that an issue? <laughs> I suppose in Aaron's D.'s life it is. Exactly. <laughs> Our Jeffrey D., he says, my first wish was to benefit humanity. My second, for all life on Earth. And this last one's for the ladies. <laughs> God. <laughs> Philip A., His answer is, bro, remind me what I did with the first two. Dang it. (laughs) And Neil C., he wants to use his last wish for the destruction of all alarm clocks.
0: (laughs) I agree with that completely.
1: And that'll be it until... (laughs) After a little our, bit
0: later. All right, Till after, Jeffy. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets your choice of whatever. This is how swag you want. And as we have not had, not, many, <laughs> not had many responses so far, this is a really good opportunity for you to win. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can tweet it at us. But you, we have to have your answer by the end of today's show, as we will be announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth this week, Jeff decodes a MAGA secret. We have the rest of your answers to this week's question from how following, Jeff. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, This Is Hell. You can help us climb out of that debt by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. On Patreon this week, uh, it's part two on rural bias, as admitted by rural people, even boasted and bragged about by people who live in the country. In part one last week, and you can hear that again at Patreon, uh, in part one, while in small town America, I found an opinion column headlined Life Makes Sense in Country, Farm Folk Drowned Amid a Crazy World in the Pantograph, which serves, serves the twin cities of Bloomington and Normal, Illinois. So, of course, I assume the rural biases, generalization stereotypes, prejudices, and bigotry that the opinion writer reveals is normal in that part of the country. If you live in the city and cannot stand when fellow city dwellers dismiss all rural folk as reactionary halfwits who are manipulated by conservative paranoia, wait until you hear what rural types are saying about people like you and me, city folk. Unsurprisingly, country people also have their own condescending and elitist views of us here in urban areas. So we're going back to small-town America where I found a Facebook group called Marquis Township Short-Term Rental Stoppage in Roscommon County, Michigan, where my family has been vacationing annually for 63 years since before I was born. The group is very concerned that Airbnb may not be allowed in their township. That kind of government interference in business is not supported in this area which voted two to one for Trump at, to be president, not once, but twice. The supporters of short-term rentals appear to be losing their case because now they're hoping for help from, you guessed it, the big state government, who they want to stop, step in and stop locals from limiting, if not banning, Airbnb altogether. It's the kind of contradiction that repeatedly comes up when members of the groups uh, admit to their biases against those who live in the city. We'll also be sharing a classic interview with our, from our archives that is not available anywhere else. And as Sudan experienced a military coup this week, we thought we'd go back to the year 2007 when all the cool kids like George Clooney in Hollywood and throughout the entertainment industry were advocating for the independence of Darfur from Sudan. Back on April 14, 2007, we spoke with... Mahmoud Mamdani, whose most recent book at that time was Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, America, the Cold War, and the Roots of Terror. But we had him on to discuss his just-posted London Review of Books article, The Politics of Naming Genocide, Civil War, Insurgency, an article that did not make the situation in Darfur and Sudan as simple as some people were making it out to be. Mahmoud made the point that every so-called humanitarian intervention, as many were demanding to happen in Darfur at that time, was the language of... Big powers. Colonialism, he pointed out, was always justified as humanitarian and a civilizing mission. He even pointed out that Iraq was experiencing the same number of deaths that were also being committed by paramilitaries connected to the government and its military. But in Darfur, they called that genocide when it was the exact same situation. So it's it's a kind of not so subtle not so subtle idea. It's just the ideas that were overlooked by celebrities like George Clooney, who the media then labels as humanitarian, when his actions really look a lot more like colonialism. So if you want to find out what small-town America is saying about big-city America, and hear somebody who actually understood what was happening in Darfur, subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams live every Friday and is podcast shortly after. At the same place, patreon.com slash hell. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two,
2: you know what to do. The hey. moment of truth. The
3: lame-ass MAGA enigma. Welcome to your moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Recently I had one of my epiphanies, and this time it wasn't due to the onset of an unexplained seizure coming on simultaneously with a mild stroke. Here it is. I think Hollywood could make faster progress in getting more women into key jobs behind the camera if it stopped killing them with trains and guns once they got there. But more on that later. Over the weekend I went to an excellent rock show. One of the best I've been to in my life. The openers were the Blasters, a longtime favorite Americana roots rock band fronted by guitarist, songwriter, and vocalist Dave Alvin. Then a lesser known band I will not name came on and did not disappoint because I wasn't expecting anything and then the stage was turned over to the headliners. X, a legendary 80s punk band, fronted by vocalist Xene and guitarist-vocalist John Doe. I wasn't much into punk in the late 70s into the 80s, so I only knew X by reputation, and they exceeded what I had been led to expect. They were musically tremendous, and lyrically, at least the lyrics I could hear, pretty poetic. At one point, John Doe, who I believe still has the preference for progressive politics he evinced in the 1960s going to anti-war protests, said, When the election comes around next year, remember to get out there and vote. And a bit strangely, I thought, the woman next to me shouted sarcastically, And don't be racist! Why didn't you throw that in there? That was a head-scratcher. But a little deeper into the set, Exine said, Happy birthday, Brandon! I suspected I knew what that might mean. Near the end of the show she said, "Let's go, Brandon." And a portion of the crowd cheered. Someone shouted, "We love you, Exeed." I on the other hand said, "Oh, f you." See, earlier in the day, a statistics cherry-picking right-wing gun rights libertarian who spouts his drac ad nauseam at the coffee place where I hang out sometimes, had invaded a Facebook post of mine. The post I posted was this. So how do we head off the fascist dictatorship coming after the 2024 election? Any suggestions? His comment was this. Why are y'all so concerned? Dem Senate, Dem House, and Brandon is doing a fantastic job, no? What more could you ask for? My response was, Who the F is Brandon? Surely the best-informed man at coffee should know that the current president's name is Biden. The Brandon trope, for those of us not in the know, because we're not drooling developmentally disabled toddlers, is a reference to Brandon Brown. He won an automobile race. And while he was being interviewed, the crowd started chanting, Fuck Joe Biden! Because, of course, whenever someone achieves something worthy of applause, your fans' first instinct is to shout out profanity about a politician they don't like. You know, like when Yo-Yo Ma played a beautiful Bach suite, the crowd used to yell, Trump is a rapist! Of course, it was true. But even so, inappropriate as a substitute for, Bravo! Or... Nice cello suite, ma. Anyway, the reporter interviewing him said the chant was, Let's go, Brandon. So, let's go, Brandon means fuck Joe Biden. I guess the reason the little coffee chimp didn't respond to me is because he was busy giggling to himself, like a preteen girl in a clique of mean friends who have a secret cruel name for an overweight classmate they ostracize. Weird that adults act this way, especially as a form of ostensible political rebellion. Exine is a well-known conspiracy theorist who thinks school shootings and incel massacres like the one Elliot Roger perpetrated are false flag hoaxes. Her brain's pretty much poached from years of partying like she was famous, but feeling she was never famous enough. The poor pickled coos. The tradition of self-righteous pop music stars is as old as recording itself. And the large number of supposedly rebellious figures who turned out to be right-wingers shouldn't be surprising at this late date. I found out back in college that black lesbian icon Joan Armitrading was a Thatcherite. So when I found out former drummer for the Velvet Underground, Moe Tucker, who came to Chicago in the 90s and at the Empty Bottle on Western did one of the best rock shows I've ever seen in my life, was a W. Bush supporter, it wasn't such a shock. Likewise, Johnny Ramone, whose love for the rotten right went back to Nixon and beyond, prepared me for the fact that the lead singer for L.A. punk's The Effigies became a right-wing Catholic W. Bush-supporting prosecuting attorney in Illinois, which fact, in turn, prepared me for right-wing Trump-sucking Johnny Rotten, who in turn prepared me for Saturday Night at the Greek, when twisted conspiracy coups Exine said, in childish secret Maga NASCAR code, F Joe Biden. That my giggling mean girlish coffee acquaintance was likewise emotionally retarded was also not a particularly earth-shaking reveal. It almost engenders affection, like the kind one has for an ugly two-legged dog. Axine, the Johnnies, and little Sailor Goon—they're just cheering for their team, and they picked a bad team, a lousy, nasty, cheating, racist, cowardly team. Theirs is a shady team, like the 1988-90 to 90 Detroit Pistons, the bad boys. Except the Pistons were lovable villains who won on their skill and teamwork, whereas the team these white supremacist Hello Kitty rejects are cheering for can only win by wrecking the home court of any opponent before the game starts, and they are not the least bit lovable, not even as lovable as Bill Lambeer. No, these revelations, while annoying, were not mind-blowing. They didn't even constitute a mild breeze across the cranium. What blew my mind was when I found out that the first AD on the set of Rust, who reportedly handed Alec Baldwin a loaded firearm and announced it a cold gun, resulting in DP Helena Hutchins being fatally shot, was also the first AD on my movie, Basmati Blues. I know that guy. I wanted to check in with him when a friend of, from, of mine from the production told me, but he had de- deactivated his Facebook account for understandable reasons. Let me say that on our movie, he was eager to please and happy to get the first AD position. He ran an efficient set, and because there was so much other nuttiness going on, typical of movie shoots in India, and we had no weapons on our set other than a Lottie stick, indian policemen use for hitting their victims i can only tell you that he did an excellent job for us as for harassment i don't remember him ever touching me inappropriately if he did i must have liked it the death of helena hutchins is a tragic result of union norms and safety precautions being scoffed at and if iazi doesn't strike now i think they're making a mistake Work on a TV or movie set is never going to be a regular 9-to-5 job, but there's a union because the work can be dangerous and taxing. And if the rules already in place aren't being followed, a strike can only help re-cement them in the minds of producers and the culture of the industry. Unfortunately, the bad team, you could call them Spanky and the Oversized Rascals, has its sticky fingers in this pie, too. The Oversized Rascals are against unions and safety regulations and wormed their attitude into the workplace pretty much from the beginning of cinema history. So cheerleaders for the Oversized Rascals aren't just coyly cussing at the Democratic president, who nobody really likes that much anyway. They are against workers' rights, women's rights, civil rights, and human rights. And that... Just makes their babyish games that much more pathetic and disgusting. This has been the moment of truth. Good
0: grief, Jeffy! Lovely to well, hear your voice, but again, to hear your voice. I'm up against the clock. I That's over okay. This week.
3: I understand, but you know, I, I, oh, anyway, and I whatever. Believe, I
0: believe the construction is beginning next door as well.
3: Yes, it is, and they're beginning to yell and scream. <laughs> Sweet.
0: Well, you enjoy your weekend, and more importantly yeah stay beautiful okay richard please tell us the, how our listeners are responding to this week's question from hell remind us what the question is
1: too yes the question for hell for this week is and for your third wish and we have a winner
0: oh you do we do yes
1: brandon s his <laughs> wish his last wish is for this is hell board operators to earn a living wage. Well,
0: Brayden, I got got information for you. We are going to make your wish come true as of right now. Board operators will be making a living wage. So listeners, email us if you're interested in becoming a board operator on this is hell while making a living wage. So there you go. Any, any other more responses? Is that
1: it? We have one more response. Yeah. One last response from Hypocrite Reader. He says a grand unified answer to the question from hell that can be applied every week, no matter the question, oh, to elicit a little chuckle. Bes- besides, quote your mom, unquote. It is. It, <laughs> it is over. Oh,
0: good. Okay. <laughs> Jeez, I thought for sure he was gonna throw. They were gonna throw in a D's nuts at the end. I was so worried about that. Okay, so the answers I liked the most were Braden. That is a great. Answer to the question from Hellforth, this is how board operators to earn a living wage. That's what his third wish is. Uh, Neil saying, uh, and for your third wish, Neil responding, the destruction of all alarm clocks. Rinaldo saying, no more cutting the paws off monkeys. Kim saying, that my first two wishes don't have unforeseeable twists, rendering them regrettable. And Fabio saying, I would like to place an NFT on this wish. That makes this week's winner Kim... Fantastic! You made reference to the other two wishes. Kim's response saying, and for your third wish, that my first two wishes don't have unforeseeable twists, rendering them regrettable. So, Kim, congratulations. Contact us via Facebook or email or whatever. Tell us what your mailing address is and what piece of merchandise you want. That you can see right now by going to thisishell.com support And we'll get that This Is Hell swag to you in the mail ASAP My answer to this week's question from hell And for your third wish Well, with my first wish, I ended racism With my second wish, I ended misogyny With my third wish, I'm permanently ending poverty So enjoy your new world of free of racism, misogyny, and poverty And you're welcome Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's Question from Hell. Richard, do we have anyone scheduled yet for next week's shows?
1: Oh, hell yeah. Oh, no, we do. Monday, we have Don't Know. <laughs> Tuesday, we have We're Working on It. And? And Wednesday is, I don't know. I to be determined. To be determined. Right. Yes.
0: But Jeff Dorchin will be there. <laughs> uh, we start every week's live streaming shows here at thishell.com by revealing this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is a probiotic smoothie followed by a bowl of B-vitamin-enriched cereal and then an artichoke supplement, whether that cure was written by humans or prissy machines in an algorithm. That's what it actually said In the article Prissy Machines Or just an ad for Muller Vitality Special K And Sinara Tablets Thanks to this week's guests Including historian Warren Eugene Miltier Junior Author of Beyond Slavery's Shadow Free People of Color In the South Thanks to yesterday's guest Writer Adam Smith Author of Deep Sniff A History of poppers and queer futures. Thanks to today's guest, Rob Larson, who wrote the current affairs article, How Serious Is the Inflation Situation? And thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Thanks to Richard Norwood for running the board today. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. Special thanks to Theron Humiston, just because. Talk to you tomorrow, Friday, or not tomorrow. Talk to you Friday on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is how When I'll be going back to small town America For the second part of our two-parter on rural bias We'll also be sharing a 2007 interview with anthropologist Mahmoud Mandami On his article discussing the crisis in Darfur and Sudan The politics of naming genocide, civil war insurgency. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's
3: stupid. My demon is on my butt, uh. my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor, uh. and my demon tries to knock me down.